The Canucks and the NHL are taking a pause for all-star game festivities. It is the Canucks hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. I'm Jamie Dodd, my co-host, as always, Canucks insider Thomas Drance, who of course also the cover, uh, covers the team at The Athletic. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. AvenueMachinery.ca. Transfer the Canucks did not play last night, but their playoff chances did take another hit because the Oilers, the Kings, and the Flames, who are not really the subject of a chase by the Canucks at this point, given how they're playing, but three Pacific Division rivals, the Oilers, the Kings, and the Flames, all win and the playoff chance is already not great for the Canucks as I said take another beating on the out-of-town scoreboard last night down from nine percent to eight percent as a result of what occurred while the Canucks were not in action on geez was it Wednesday night yes okay it's cool. Thursday sweet <laughs> the uh, yeah I'm you know the playoffs are a long shot we all know it and you know I do think it's important that while we continue to track it because of how this team has performed for the most part since the coaching change, right? That's the reason we're giving it some credence, right? Is this team has gone twelve five and four and have sort of earned some level of us tracking? You know, can they do it? Probably not. Very probably not. But uh, yeah, uh, Flames. How many shots did they end up with? I know they had like forty in the first period. It was incredible. Yeah, against the moribund. Arizona Coyotes, just and, brutal. And Canucks fans, avert your eyes from the Chris Tanev uh, stat line yeah. last night. <laughs> four points? Oof, yeah. One goal, three assists, new career high. Nice. Four points. Uh, I also saw... Well, and goals that beat Vegmelka should count for two. <laughs> Corral the thrill. <laughs> I also, uh, I was just perusing the Sportsnet.ca homepage before the show, and uh, Shayna Goldman, who does great work at Sportsnet.ca. And, has, and at The Athletic. And at The Athletic, of course. My of friend Shayna, yeah. yeah. Has uh, identified the Chris Tanev Oliver Shillington pair as one of the the best pair. Uh, actually, has the best second pairing in the NHL. Yeah, so and Chris Tanev paired with a young left-handed offensive defenseman. Uh, you know who who would have thought that that yeah. would be such a hit? Well, let's also just remember that Oliver Shillington cleared waivers twice. Yes, right. Uh, you know, which is an interesting thing. I was thinking about this a little bit on the walk over here, not in the shower, but on the walk over here, and <laughs> I was thinking a little bit about. One thing that the Rutherford M.O. has been traditionally in Pittsburgh is to take a variety of chances on younger defensemen that aren't yet established or are established and struggling significantly <laughs> with the hopes that they'll bounce back. And, you know, on the latter point, the guy who's established but struggling significantly in the hopes that they'll bounce back, Justin Schultz is the proof of concept that worked. Mike Matheson is the proof of concept that didn't, but it's basically the same bet, right? This is an athletic, fast, puck-moving guy who we believe is better than he looks to his current team and that we can get more value out of. That's the same bet. John Marino was a NCAA guy, sort of not quite an Adam Fox situation. I don't think he was at that point. Not where the he same wasn't, extreme, but that's a fa- there was a factor. There in was that a factor in there, but yeah. nonetheless, a sort of college-aged kind of acquisition. Uh, see what see what see if there's some found money there. He obviously was for the Pittsburgh Penguins. Marcus Pedersen, another really good example. Marcus Pedersen was kind of like a seven eight defenseman for the Anaheim Ducks. Pittsburgh acquired him. Great trade. Not the best contract. He's now signed for for a contract that's a little bit pricey. So that's sort of been like a template for them. And I was thinking about this because, you know, as we've discussed 
with bated breath in this market, speculated, right? I mean, every guy, all, every forward must go in the Vancouver market at the moment in terms of the trade rumors surrounding Canucks roster players. And by the way, it's not just what you're hearing in public. Every day this week, I feel like I've had league sources reaching out and inquiring or telling me about a new Canucks forward. Like if you're a Canucks forward signed for more than two and a half million, there's hockey operations yes. departments discussing your ability to help them in the context of he's available. Right. So uh, obviously with the exception of Bo Horvat and Elias Pettersson. So as, but as all of those, those names have come back to me and I know we've had some cold water locally poured on names like Connor Garland, but that name's definitely out there, definitely out there in league circles. Uh, we all, we all know the, the other ones. Um, no one would be surprised by them. The, the Miller, the Besser, um, the Pearson names. Right. But the thing that has been surprising to me as I've tracked this, as I've discussed it with, a variety of people around the league is no, no names have come back to me that are defensemen. And I find that interesting because the Canucks have, if you factor in Travis Hamannick, who's on LTI, almost $29 million committed to their blue line, which is like 5 million more than Tampa Bay. <laughs> like, you know, it's not just more than Tampa Bay. It's a more lot. than Tampa Bay by a lot. A lot more. I think only the San Jose Sharks have a more expensive blue line than the Canucks. So, you know, as I think about some of these things and I, I occasionally get questions or someone on Twitter DMs me or an old buddy texts me and they go, you know, things like, would you do Garland for Severson? And it's like, that sounds like good value until you remember that that's five million more for your blue line. You know, you, you kind of can't do it. Like the whole ball game from the cut cap space point of view is to reappropriate and reallocate that cap space out of your defense. Out of your defense. Not only is that a staple of the Rutherford Penguins teams or the Rutherford Carolina Hurricanes teams from the earlier part of the cap era, it's just obviously what this team needs to do. Like, it's so obviously the whole ball game on the cap side is to free up space on the blue line, and yet, for whatever reason, maybe it's a lack of interest. Maybe, maybe, I'm, maybe I have a bias ingrained by the fact that I know more progressive people around the business than I do... Um, old school, types. old school people, yeah. but I, but I know some old school people too. Um, Canucks defenseman, I'm, I'm hearing nothing, and and I, I don't know if there's something to that or if there's, or if there's not. I'm trying to determine whether the absence of information is in fact useful information. That's sort of what I was thinking about on my walk over. Well, here I think today. a lot of that has to. And look, obviously, you're the one with the sources around the league, not me. But I just logically thinking about it from the outside, it has to come down to. The forwards are the one with value. The forwards are the one who are more desirable from a league-wide perspective, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a I, I I don't think it's that much of a mystery why people aren't you know banging your door down to try to acquire Tyler Myers. And I like the job Tyler Myers has done this season more than you do, but I can still recognize hey. the contract. No, I'm not. Hey, I, why I'm, are you? Why are you? Ca- why are you? <laughs> Putting shade my way. I'm, I'm just saying, I like I've I like how Tyler fair. Myers has played. I've been very fair to but Tyler Myers. Right. You can have a slightly lesser opinion of his season than me. I'm not. I'm not saying. Well, that what's your negative. What's your opinion of his season? He's been a legit top four defenseman. In terms of what? His overall level of play. Okay, that's what I would say. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's probably so right. we're we're close. We're so, close. but but I can also even having said that and having a generally positive view of how he's played this year. I also understand why teams aren't knocking down the door saying, hey, give us Tyler Myers. Whereas with Connor Garland, with JT Miller, go down the list, there's a reason those guys are in demand. So it's the kind of thing where even if they want... So you're saying that Tyler Myers' market value underrates his performance this year? 
No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying even within that market value, the contract would is you expect still... him to net a significant return if he were expiring? You could trade him if he was expiring for, well, for sure. You could trade him. Significant is you know what? What would is you get? A you... would you get a second plus? If Tyler Myers was expiring this year and you retain salary, yes, absolutely, you would. Yeah, I, th- I don't think you're wrong. For, for him just... playing, for a defenseman playing at this level, going into the Stanley Cup playoffs, and you you make the salary work, yes. I, it would be a niche. You wouldn't have a big market. Sure, but it would be a big market. Uh, maybe. I think I think you're right. I think you're right, but I'm not certain that you're right. So, you know, that's an interesting one. That's an interesting way to frame the discussion. Like, does he have second? Does he have top four legit top four market value? Um, even if, if in the in a world where he was expiring, right? Because that that makes such a big difference in into a guy's market price. Yeah, it's not just the AAV; it's the term. Yeah, as as we could see with um, you know some moves that the Canucks may make this year that perhaps should have been made last year when the guy would have had a ton of value. Um, so yeah, no, it's a, it's an interesting thought, a thought experiment, but I think you're right. Tyler Myers has been at a like bona fide top four level this season. Uh, 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Just before we move on, you know, you brought up the, uh, the Pittsburgh defense assembled, uh, in large part under Jim Rutherford's tenure there. And in that article I mentioned by Shana Goldman, which everyone can check out at sportsnet.ca, she identifies Mike Matheson and Chad Ruedel as the best third pairing in the league right now. Now, based on Mike Matheson's contract, you're not you don't love having him on the third pair, but hey, they're finding a way to get. Uh, I love Chad Ruedel Ru- though. Yes. <laughs> oh man, big fan. No, I'm not kidding. I'm a big fan. He's like a perfect transitional defense stay at home guy. You know, can move, bomb shot, and uh, and can and is like a really sturdy defenseman. Like, there's a lot. There's a lot of players that fit ma- that match like that rough profile in Vancouver that I think he is, you know, every bit as good as. And some of those guys have a lot of German money attached to them. Yes, they do. So, as we just kind of discussed, and look, has been discussed a lot here in the market, we're in this kind of waiting period now, right? And, and you talked about the names you're hearing when you talk to people around the industry. We've all heard from Frank Saravelli, from... Uh, Elliot Friedman from local insiders such as yourself about the names that are out there. We kind of all know where this is going, right? Like the volume of reporting on what this front office thinks, what they're doing right now, the names they're surveying the market on, it's out there. It's pretty overwhelming as but, well. But don't you find that there's also a lot of like back and forth, like small disagreements? Like, oh, I'm not sure about the urgency or like I haven't heard sure. that name. You know, I still think things are close enough to the vest that it's, that it's not really getting out from Vancouver. And as a result, I think you're seeing some marginal disagreement here and there. Um, you know, and that's also, I think, a product of the fact that while moves have to be made and cap flexibility must be the order of the day for the Canucks, not to mention younger players and future assets, right? Well, that's all true. The flip side of it is that there is no actual urgency in the specific talks involved, right? It's like, we know the Canucks have to do something yes. to carve out flexibility. Like any individual move, there's no specific urgency. There, there's no there's no clock on any door that they ha- they could open to begin their path toward, you know, de- detonating a, a group that, you know, a- as we go into the All-Star break, ranks 22nd in the NHL in point percentage, having fallen once again behind the mighty Detroit Red Wings. So... You know, it's it's sort of an interesting dynamic 
I think in Vancouver, like, you know, I, I heard Ian McIntyre on with Alfred and Bruff, great hit. He was discussing the, the that there's not a ton of urgency, that they don't necessarily have to do those blockbuster moves before the deadline. And I agree with him that there's no urgency to do Miller or trade uh, a player like a Garland or, or a Brock Besser or whomever before the deadline. But you have to do something, surely, because you, you don't want to go into... May and June and July and this organization or this new look front office's first sort of planning period for the offseason with the type of limitations on your space that you have at the moment, right? You you do want to know that there's some things you can accomplish. You do want to have some cost certainty from a flexibility standpoint. And so it's a unique sort of environment where the urgency isn't about the individuals it's about the macro perspective of what this team needs to get better and step one step one is the ability to have avenues to improve vis-a-vis additional caps well especially because the logic of all these moves right is if you trade jt miller then you're probably going to try to extend bo horvat right like you are going to try to extend bo horvat so you want to, you know, th- those discussions can't actually officially start until the summer. But to your point, it's helpful to have a better, more clear idea of what your cat picture is going to look like. You're going to start contract discussions with Brock Besser if if you trade, for example, Miller and Garland. You want to know how much cap space you have in those negotiations. You're going to get roster players back. You're not going to entirely clear that cap space. So you want to know exactly what those salary cap pictures look like. There's all these things that you want to have in place for very good reasons, even if you do end up. You know, because there is a sense where with the JT Miller trade, I know if you do it at the deadline that you're selling a contender on, okay, you get two playoff runs with him. But the flip side is if you do it at the draft, there might be a lot more teams interested, right? So just in a vacuum, there's a case to be made for doing it at the draft. But as you said, that flexibility, it has the cap space has value, the flexibility, the certainty has value even before you go into the free agency period. Yeah. Right? It, there's value to getting it done early and knowing what you have in place. Returns are always highest before the deadline. Period. Like, you know, I'm not worried about additional suitors being in uh, if I'm the Canucks from a Canucks perspective just because prices are always highest before you can't make trades and you're set for the playoffs. Like, that's always when retail prices spike. You know, player player valuation on the trade market, right? Uh, spikes significantly at the trade deadline. It spikes significantly at the trade the deadline, especially for players with no commitments beyond the year, um, you know, that they're signed for, right? Expiring deals. Um, that's 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 when the iron is hot, even for a guy with multiple years. Now, that doesn't mean that the Canucks will have made a tremendous error should they go by that um, opportunity. But I do think I do think you can't you can't sort of fall into the trap of thinking that more teams will be involved because if you're helping teams solve problems one way or another and there's so many ways to do it these days take money back short-term money back launder the cap hit through whomever i mean there's so many different ways to go about solving a team that has a cap issue to acquire a player they want's problem that if their offer is the best you can solve those you can you really can and and i just think the market price for any of the guys we're discussing this is not a jt miller specific point is going to be highest at the deadline um and and will go down from there so you know it's going to be an interesting thing to watch them sort of wait i do think that the fact that they're not in a rush right the fact that the, the one thing everyone will tell you about Miller's status is there's no urgency, right? There's no 
Like, I do think that's something the Canucks are very keen to make sure their potential trade partners are aware of, uh, especially on the Miller front. Yeah. They're not wrong. It's not even, it's not remotely a, a dishonest or a posture thing. It's, it's absolutely bona fide, 100% true, but you know, the urgency still exists. It just exists in a, in a more global perspective from a more macro sense. Well, if you are, if you're trying to trade JT Miller, yes, I would lean towards doing it before the deadline for the reasons you laid out, right? That's likely when you're going to get the biggest return for a variety of reasons. And again, there's teams that are in the New York Rangers have the salary cap space to do it. They're the team we hear connected to it most often, right? So there's a good chance that the salary cap is not going to play a major role or salary cap complications are not going to play a major role as a roadblock to a JT Miller uh, the, trade. The industry believes that the process runs through New York. Exactly. So, so, so right there, there, that's a good reason to try to get it done before the deadline because you don't need to bring in other teams that will potentially have more cap space in the summer. But as you said, it's not a lie to say that like he's not a ufa so it's not a drop dead date at the deadline no no, no. oh man we have to get this done tomorrow or else we're going to lose this asset for nothing you can wait and it wouldn't be a disaster to try to do it further down the and they do like the player they do like of course and there and there is a and there is an extent to which too the dynamic of what extensions look like across the board particularly for you know besser who's expiring and miller who's expiring in two years play a big role too in what the optimal path forward is for a team that while I think they understand the need to clear the decks cap wise also have no intention of going into a five-year rebuild or a multiple you know a half decade long process to get competitive again right this is a this is an accelerated type of rethink as opposed to you know, something like a retool or a rebuild or one of those other rewords that we use to discuss (laughs) teams, right? Uh, So, you know, it it is going to be fascinating to watch it all unfold, uh, especially as we get glints and glimmers of what exactly is happening from various reporters and and folks who are connected within the industry. It's it's going to be a very interesting next six weeks. It is. It really is. And it is we do still have six plus weeks right before the trade deadline hits and the just the sheer number of different possibilities that are out there it makes it feel i would be very surprised if something significant doesn't happen between now and the deadline despite the oh well you know they don't really have to do it before the deadline that's true but there are one there's good reasons that they would want to two there's good reasons that other teams will make their best well, offer before si- the deadline sitting pretty sitting pretty would be a massive missed opportunity it's one thing it's one thing to sit pretty and do some and do some deals you know what i mean but to do nothing i think is not tolerable i i just i don't think you can roll through this season with the roster that has been constructed by this organization right now like i just don't think you can it's no it's not good enough like it's not close to good enough frankly um, I think new incoming management's aware of that. Like, they do need to begin to reset the decks, even if it's money in, money out, even if they're not the types of deals that sort of give you a glimpse of what this roster could be over the long haul. You know, just, just changing up the mix as best you can. Just, I mean, even if you win, say you come out of the All-Star break and win eight games in a row, like, getting a guy who can help you kill penalties, you know, for a guy who's not maybe as as useful to you in that area, like doing some of those moves, I still think matters. So to be quiet, you know, there's again, to be quiet with this roster through the deadline, I don't think is a tolerable situation. Like, I don't think that's something that fans should look at and be like, well, they needed time. 
you know, like you brought in new management in early December. You, you brought in a new GM. There's a lot. There's still lots of time you between s- now and you, the deadline. You have lots of time, and you have to use it. You have to begin to move this club in the right direction. Well, and as you said, prices are highest at the deadline. So try to take advantage of that. Doesn't mean you do any deal just for the sake of doing a deal. But yeah, strike while the iron is hot. Strike while your assets are in demand around the league. Bobby from the Docks says, JT Miller won't get traded if the Canucks are in the playoff picture. No way in hell. He only gets traded if they are 100% out of the playoffs this year. I disagree with that. I I, I, I disagree with that as well because... I think if a team meets the ask that's going to take precedence over a slim shot at making the postseason. I really do. I really do believe that. That's not how this organization has typically functioned. Um, I believe that this is how this new management group will function, especially at this deadline. I think if you're a Canucks fan, that should be music to your ears. I just think that's that's the ultimate reason that you make the change in management, right? Because they're not beholden to trying to prove that this group is a playoff team. Because they're not. Exactly. You bring in new eyes that have the ability, have the freedom, have the political capital in a sense to say, you know what? I know this team is close. I know they're doing some good things close this year. I know they've done some good things since the coaching change. But in the best interest of the future of the franchise, we had to make this really hard decision. Previous regime wouldn't be able to say that with any credibility. Jim Rutherford can. That's why you make the move, and it wouldn't surprise me at all if he does decide to go that route. But uh, but again, I think it's all going to be far more dependent on forward-looking items, right? The price of a possible extension, weighting that versus the price of a possible return, as opposed to where the Canucks are in the standings. You know, unless they really knock the doors off of the month of February— and really make like a case that you can't ignore. Yeah. But but right now, like ten percent odds, less than ten percent odds, you know, you're looking at a one in twelve, one in thirteen shot of making the playoffs. I don't think that's a significant enough factor to weight relative to ask, right, of the player and ask of the possible teams, you know, making making bids for that player on the trademark. Yeah, and, and somebody texted in, if they trade them and they're in the playoffs, what will the players think? Well, look, if they come out of the All-Star break and rattle off 12 wins in a row, then maybe the conversation changes, right? Mm-hmm. Then, then it does become difficult to sell that to your players and sell that internally. That's a huge, obviously, that's a massive if, though. I, I don't think it matters about team performance. It's going to be hard to sell to the players no matter what. The, the room is not going to like good pieces being shipped out for players they don't know or younger guys That's fair. and picks like, and, yeah. and that is a factor the club is weighing heavily like do do not do not underestimate it does not matter they could come out and lose 8 of 10 in the month of february and that would still be something that you know would be weighted with due sobriety by a club that knows that these players having done a lot of losing over the years with one year sort of aside um you know it doesn't there's not a lot of appetite in that locker room for taking a step back. I don't think there's a lot of appetite in this city for taking another step back. It's it's just that you have to contend with the reality that you're not good enough as constructed. And so I think again that's one of those factors that's going to play a role and and per- perhaps not per- like I don't want to say a shaping role, but I think is going to be cause for significant deliberation regardless of how the team performs coming out of the all-star it's a consideration and again i think that's where bringing in somebody with the cachet and the weight of jim rutherford can pay dividends because i think it's easier for him to make that pitch even though as you said inherently that's the kind of thing that is unpopular with nhl players because obviously they all want to win right now and very understandably so but i do think it's an easier sell and you can do it with 
while doing less damage to kind of the relationships on the team when you have a guy like Jim Rutherford who has his history in the NHL in charge making that pitch. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Lots of thoughts coming in. Keep them coming. We're going to turn our attention to some of the on-ice questions coming up after the All-Star break for the Vancouver Canucks as well. It is the Canucks Hour. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drantz on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back. It is the Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drantz here with you for another half hour. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Keep your text coming in as well. 650-650. Lots of great thoughts arriving in the Dunbar Lumber text line. As a reminder as well, make sure you subscribe to the Canucks Hour podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a five-star rating and review as well. So, understandably, Drancer, we you know we were back on the Canucks trade talk, the speculation, what would make sense for the team, what's the best course of action with the roster going forward. And that, as I said, very understandable given everything we're hearing from plugged-in insiders and reporters around the industry about the mindset of Jim Rutherford and the new front office. But as we take a little pause here for the All-Star break, and they've played more than half their schedule, but it is kind of the unofficial halfway point of the NHL season here, I do want to focus in a little bit on the on-ice questions and the on-ice product that we're going to see from the Vancouver Canucks for the rest of the season. And I don't mean what's kind of at stake or what the questions are in terms of the playoff chase, right? Because as we have detailed at length, the playoffs remain a massive, massive long shot. But I do think there's a sense where good organizations still look at it and say, hey, look, even if we're not going to make the playoffs, every game we have, it's still an opportunity to gather more information, still an opportunity to try things out, to learn more about our team, right? There's ways to find an edge, even if the playoffs are not going to be a reality this season for us. And I think whenever you're talking about, okay, what are the biggest on-ice questions for the Canucks? What are you hoping to see in the second half? The name that's going to come up first and foremost for a lot of people is Elias Pettersson, for very good reason. We all know what kind of season he's had and how disappointing it has been. What I am specifically looking at, what I'm really curious to see is, yes, Elias Pettersson's performance, but also specifically, what is the fit between Elias Pettersson and the head coach, Bruce Boudreaux, look like? What does that on-ice working relationship look like? You remember when, when Boudreaux was hired, and a lot of what we heard at the time was part of his appeal, a big part of his appeal, was his proven track record to get the most out of high-end star offensive players, to make them extremely productive. We've seen it at every stop in his NHL career. That's going to be a major, major storyline. And when I talk about their relationship, I'm not talking about off-ice, how do they get along. I'm talking about specifically, how does Pedersen fit with Bruce Boudreaux as a coach? How can Boudreaux get the most out of Elias Pedersen going forward? The comparison I would make is, you know, in the NFL the relationship between a head coach and a quarterback is paramount. Making sure they're on the same page. Making sure they're aligned. Now, it's not the same in the NHL because there's no one player who's ever going to have as much influence on your team outside as a quarterback. Yeah, outside of a goalie, but that's a whole separate separate category. You know, your number one center is not going to influence your team as much as the quarterback does in the NFL. But I do still think if Elias Pettersson, as I believe he should be, is on this untouchable list for the Vancouver Canucks, if the plan is, yeah, we're going to make a lot of other major moves potentially, but we're going to build around Elias Pettersson because he has that talent, 
you have to make sure that there's alignment and that there is a fit, an on-ice fit with how Boudreau wants to play and how he's using Pedersen and, and Elias Pedersen himself. And it's interesting because, you know, Pedersen's bounced around the lineup a lot since Bruce Boudreau has come here. And part of that is, you know, he hasn't really been able to get in a consistent rhythm and a consistent groove. But I think the thing I'm going to be watching more than anything else is not just can Elias Pedersen look like the old Elias Pedersen over the final stretch of the season, but specifically what does Bruce Boudreau do to get the most out of Pedersen? What does that fit between the coach and the star forward look like? I think that's a major, major question for the Canucks for the remainder of this season. Yeah, I mean, in terms of what matters for this hockey team on ice for the next decade, Pedersen's form in the second half is probably the biggest storyline to watch. You know, I'd expect some significant regression to both his personal shooting and on-ice shooting clips. It's one reason I'd expect him to score far more over the last 36 than he has to this point in the season. Like, I'd expect him to end up 50 to 55 points as opposed to the 40-ish points he's on pace for. The Canucks better hope that happens. <laughs> they need this guy to, to produce an awful oh, yeah. lot more than he has. Um, you know, he's been he's been moved around a little bit in terms of the power play. He's certainly played with a whole wash of different line mates. He's played at wing. He's played at center. There have been moments where he's looked back, and there have been moments where he's looked, you know, not. Um, last five games, for example, I still like a lot of what I'm seeing. He's still one of the Canucks' best players by just about every two-way metric, and his shot attempts are still way up, which I like. Um, but his shots are not, right? I still he, – he's his – He's still prone to a lot of misses because he he tries to paint corners, and I think that's okay. I think you need to live with that because his ability to postage stamp the puck is incredible, right? I don't think you want to. I don't think you want to worry too much about him doing the Mike Bossy thing and just getting shots on net or the Mike Hoffman thing. Pedersen's going to beat goalies in the inch that he can. You know, he's going to um, do the uh, Luke Skywalker. Uh, <laughs> hitting wombats if, kind of thing. If Pedersen is shooting more, it doesn't mean he's just firing it into the crest. He's no. going to beat the goalie. It's, it's like sh- Raising his shooting volume is going to pay a huge dividend. It's it, not just going to lower the percentage. But it's why I look at attempts with him as opposed to with, um, you know, as opposed to looking at or focusing in on shots, which I do for most other players because he misses more than most other players. He He hits the post more than most other players. He's, you know, a little bit more fine in his overall details than most other players. And so I sort of treat him a little bit differently from an analytical perspective. But I like that the shot attempt rate has stayed high. Um, You know, I want to see him play center. I don't want to see him play wing. I think he's best in the middle. I think a lot of his uh, best attributes, which are the brain, the ability to think the game, the skill with the puck on his stick, I think all of that works better on the wing. Or sorry, in the middle than it does on the wall. Um, you know, I, I like, I like wingers to play fast. I like them to win a lot of puck battles. I think that plays into some of the weaknesses of his game or relative weaknesses of his game. So, you know, I want to see him play center. I do think it would help to find him some consistent line mates. One thing we've seen almost none of since Boudreaux took over is, is Pedersen with Besser. We've seen very little of that. We've also seen his ice time decline a bit. Um, so, you know, I'd like to see Besser or I'd like to see Besser PD get some get a run of games together. I'd like to see Pedersen stick in the middle. Um and I'd like to see him get, you know, bona fide top line ice time for for a run of games, especially as he starts feeling it or if he starts feeling it the way he was for a little bit 
toward the tail end of that last road trip through the southeastern United States. That's sort of my action plan for Pedersen at five on five. On the power play, you know, I still believe that the Canucks have the personnel to have a really good power play unit. I think there's some things that I, I don't understand why they haven't been tried. Connor Garland on PP1 being chief among them. Um, you know, the 2D thing, like, there's a reason no one does it anymore. You know, there's a reason for it. I don't really need to see a ton more of uh, Oliver Ekman Larson at that right flank. Whether whether it's Pedersen on his downhill flank or on his one-timer flank, you know, one of those two spots should be his. Um, keep him there. Keep him there. And ideally keep him there with some rotation. Like, let him go to the net front a bit. I think he's underrated in terms of screening goalies. Uh, put him in the bumper here and there, too. I think he's got a quick release shot that that I think works. Um, you know, I'm I'm okay with him being on his downhill side, but the problem is, is if you do that, you kind of need a righty on the other. You need both guys on their downhill side. And one thing that I haven't liked traditionally with Besser and Pedersen on their downhill side is that I don't think they're fast enough about moving the puck side to side. And if you look at the downhill sides, power plays that work, it's like really fast cross seam passes followed by, you know, contested. They're not no doubter wrist shots but they're wrist shots with the goalie sliding side to side which is always hard because you're exposing like the act of moving left right exposes parts of your body exposes holes for a goaltender um, but that has to be your bread and butter and it requires like you know impose a team fine if anyone holds the puck for more <laughs> than a second like it literally has to be moved around so fast and I just think with the age of some of Vancouver's best young players particularly when you've had Hughes Pedersen Besser puck can go and it can stop and the guy can sort of reset or come downhill and it's just like no has to be so fast has to be you know less than a second with the puck on your stick every time and uh and I just haven't liked they they, they've never really got that rhythm that flow together in that sort of alignment maybe 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 you go something like Pedersen Garland on their downhill sides I'd, I'd be open to seeing that but figuring out somewhere where you can get the most out of Pedersen 5-on-4 is going to be key for a Canucks power play that hasn't been good enough this season, certainly hasn't lived up to the talent level on the roster. Like, if there's actually one area where I'd say the Canucks have underperformed my expectations the most this season, I mean, it's probably the PK because I didn't think they'd be well, historically bad. Yes, you didn't think it was going to be great, but not like this, for yeah, sure. Yeah, but it's it, probably the power play because I thought the power play would be high-end. Had a chance end, to be really good. High-end, and it hasn't been. I mean, it's been good. It's been... Very much league average, but I thought they would be top 10, no doubt, and they haven't been. And the 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 kind of intersection of those two talking points, Elias Pettersson and the power play struggles, is really interesting. I don't think it's actually been... We've talked a lot about Elias Pettersson. We've talked a little bit about the power play, but not necessarily how those two things kind of interact with each other. And I will say... We all have, going back to the 2019-2020 season, when the power play was so effective, we have this vi vision of it in our mind's eye of Elias Pedersen and what a weapon he can be with his one-timer. And that's true. It absolutely can be a significant, dangerous weapon on the power play for the Canucks. But I also just think over the last couple of years, they've become too reliant on that. And it, it, they've turned Elias Pedersen in many ways into a one-dimensional player on the power play, where the only thing they're trying to get him involved in is by, you know, unloading that one timer. And you talked about how it has to work for him to be on his downhill side. The one element of the two defensemen experiment I have liked from a Canucks perspective is that it ended up with Elias Pettersson playing on the other side, playing on his downhill side. And yes, 
that has implications for how the rest of the team has to play and how quickly they have to move the puck. But I think anything that gets Elias Pettersson more involved as a playmaker rather than just as kind of a stationary shooting threat on the power play, anything that gets the puck on his stick and him making those key decisions more for the team, because that's a major strength. He's not a one-dimensional player. He has the creativity, the passing ability, the vision, all of that to be that guy. Now, is it going to require some development and some coaching up? Sure. But I just think anything, again, that gets him more involved as a playmaker on the power play, that has major potential. Yeah, you're you're sacrificing a bit of the big one-timer threat from him. Although, as you said, you can still move around. You can still be more fluid in your positioning on the power play. But we can talk about the five-on-five element, and there's a lot of people texting in about the move to center, which I completely agree with. But I do think on the power play, just find a way to make him a bigger part of what you're doing. Find a way to make his decision-making, his playmaking ability, a featured part of the man advantage for the Canucks. I think that could go a long way to getting that production that they need to see from Elias Pettersson back. You know, I'm surprised by this, but actually Brock Besser has been his most frequent line mate this season. 355-on-five minutes together. Um, which is which is pretty amazing because it just feels like it's been forever since they've played together. I figured I'd check it in. So here's the here's the this is twenty one twenty two right. So that's the year we're in. Just want to that is the year we're in. I don't, yes. I don't know what day it is. I don't know what year it is. I just want to make sure. Um, so here's an interesting stat for you right here. Brock Besser and Pedersen together this season three hundred fifty minutes, nineteen goals for twelve against. So the Canucks are plus seven with the two of them on the ice. JT Miller with Elias Pettersson, 27 goals for, 10 goals against. Woo! I mean, we haven't seen maybe a lot of that. Maybe we should try that, that a little bit more? Yeah, maybe, maybe we should see a little more lotto line, I think. I mean, the lotto line together as a trio, the, the underlying numbers there aren't spectacular, but I like that. I like the goals. I like the plus. I like the you score three for every one your opponent gets. That appeals to me. That'll play. That'll play. So, but, you know, it's interesting, too. Pedersen's played on a set, with a set group of wingers, like with a set group of line mates. Um, he's, there's only two line, two line combinations, which he's played at least 50 minutes with this season to this point. One is the lotto line, which they rode pretty heavily in the start of the season, and it didn't really work. But maybe it worked better than we realized yep. based, on, based on the data that I just pulled up. The other one that actually worked really well and has played about 100 minutes together, is Pedersen, Garland, Podkolzin. That trio has almost a 54% share of expected goals. I'm into that. I'm into that. I'm into seeing Garland, Pedersen, Podkolzin get a run of games too. But I do think finding some consistency might be helpful. And and it's been tough. It's not on Boudreaux. He's had a lot of in and out um, bodies in terms of the lineup. There's been a ton of odd stuff to navigate. So it's not criticism of the Canucks head coach. Uh, yeah. For his usage of Pedersen, I want to be very clear before I go down the rabbit hole here, but I do think that finding some consistency, especially now that most of the Canucks players are going to be on a testing vacation as it is, and even even if they weren't, there's no more asympto- there's no more testing of asymptomatic players. You're going to have more lo- roster consistency, more lineup consistency, barring trades, of course, over the over the latter part of the season. I think finding a consistent trio and trying to get him in a rhythm. And then on the power play, I, I think there's a point, like, the one thing I like about Pedersen at the right circle, because you're you're mentioning the one-dimensional yep. element, and I think there's very much truth to it. But the thing I like about it is there's still, the, the comparison I've made in the past is Randy Moss, Wes Welker. 
right? It's like you get you get Randy Moss double covered and Wes Welker is going to be open. You know, if you have an established Pedersen at that right circle, but then you've also got, whether it's Miller, whether it's Besser, whether it's Horvat in the bumper, you've got all these other options that become far more lethal because of the attention that, you know, teams are going to give to that one-timer. Now, I like that. I don't have a problem with the, with having that atom bomb weapon. Uh, that's been the key to the Washington Capitals consistent persistent power play success over the years is the is the Ovechkin atom bomb is just like draws so much attention so I don't have a problem with that but I do think too you can keep him there and still promote the more diverse set of attacking options so long as there's sufficient movement and rotation and that's just been something this Canucks power play has lacked for years for some reason but especially especially like the alignment where you've got you know Miller and and Horvat down low potentially if you put Besser on the other flank you know there's three lefties all of those guys are good passers all of them are good one-time shooters and all of them are willing to pay the price of the net like perfect rotate them rotate them let them play an area game with one another there's uh there's a ton of options there for me as I sort of look through it you want to throw Quinn Hughes in there like I'm interested to see what Quinn Hughes can do marauding a little bit more uh, through the lineup, and I've actually had some conversations with people in the league who are thinking about the bumper spot, thinking about revisiting it a little bit. Like, why is the guy so stationary? Yeah, where you know until until the puck is loose, until it's a retrieval situation. Like, why are teams not almost buzzing around more with that guy? Um, you know, I, I do think that I do think movement can solve a lot of the problems you're looking to solve, as opposed to just moving him to a area where, in my view, he has been far less effective. Uh, particularly because I just don't know that the Canucks have the experience to, at least to this point, they haven't had the experience and the wherewithal to make the downhill sides formation work really well. And and from my opinion, and from my perspective anyway, the key there has just been a inability to move the puck quickly enough side to side. There's definitely no mystery as to why you you want to establish the Pedersen one-timer threat for all the reasons you laid out. It can be such an alarming, such a dangerous thing that other teams have to account for. It opens up other possibilities for you. And just in general, pretty much every player in the what I would consider the kind of clear-cut first-choice top power play unit, right, of Hughes, Pedersen, Besser, Horvat, Miller, all of those players are multifaceted, right? They can all do different things. So it, you would just think there's a kind of logical argument to have them rotate around more because they're, they're not one-dimensional players. They can threaten you in different ways. They can pass. They can shoot. They can screen as you laid out. So that's certainly something I would like to see over the remainder of the season. And just to touch on the the line mate discussion with Pedersen again. I do think certainty and consistency is important, not because you're necessarily going to identify the two guys who are going to be, you know, Elias Pedersen's line mates for the next five years, because we know there could be major roster turnover, right? And you mentioned, you know, JT Miller, Connor Garland as potential options. Well, those are also guys who are involved in trade rumors. But I do just think, again, as the new Canucks regime, from the front office to the coaching staff, takes over and evaluates what they have here. I think it's good for Elias Pettersson to develop some consistency with specific line mates. And I also think it's important for, again, the Canucks brass and the coaching staff to really get a sense of this is how we want to use Elias Pettersson. This is who the types of players we think he'll be best with over the course of his career. Again, then you you have a little bit more clarity when you're going out this offseason and trying to potentially target players who you think you can comp who you think can complement your foundational guys. I also just think 
this is going to be a really important offseason for Elias Pettersson, right? We'll see how the remainder of his season goes, but this is going but to be regardless. A, exactly. It's t- he needs to level up. There's there's doubters now. And I think there's doubters for the first time in his career. Part of what has to be silence them critics. A ma- a major concern for the Canucks front office has to be how do we set up Elias Pettersson to have the most successful offseason that we can. And I think part of that is having a clear idea that you can sell to him of this is our vision for how we're going to use you. This is what we think you do well. These are This is how we're going to put you in a position to succeed and therefore go work on these things in the summer. Like having that plan for we still believe in you. Here's how we're going to get you to level up. Here's how we're going to help you. Developing that plan and using the information you gather here in the final half of the season is crucial. Yeah. Well, the work rate has never been in question for him, right? That's sort of the one thing you've got in your chamber. But but I also think part of it is grabbing this team by the scruff of its neck at some point, right? Taking ownership for results. Like, that's part of a maturation process, too. Growing into a leader. Maybe you're not the rah-rah guy. Maybe you're not JT Miller or, or what have you. But, you know, over time, over time, regardless of what your personality type is, growing into... Being the type of person on a team who understands and takes and is responsible fundamentally for the team's performance. And and I think that's one thing we kind of saw with that quote in the summer, right? Where it was, you know, I want to play on a winning team. Well, like, bud, you're a $7 million player. No, no matter what team you ever go to, their success or failure is going to be contingent on your performance first and foremost, right? And I think embracing that, growing into that role... Uh, being empowered to grow into that role is a big part of this too, right? The, the off-season workout, the fit with line mates, all of that stuff is important, and I'm not trying to minimize it, but his work rate's always been consistent. We've seen him play with a ton of line mates over the course of this year, and when he's had success, it seemed like it's come almost at random. It's like, he's good with Hoaglander. We know he's good with Besser. We've seen him be effective with Miller. We've seen him work on the wing with Horvat. Like, we've seen him function there's well. been flashes with almost every combination right. so you know it's it's not like they're um it's not like that it's for a lack of trying right the thing i want to see is that maturation that ownership taken uh that step in terms of the of the intangible side and, and you kind of need to get there you know the like the thing that happened i think with um for example sasha barkov right when, when i worked with sasha barkov a lot you know, he, he's the nicest human being I've ever met, right? He's not just the best hockey player. He's not just six foot three and 225 pounds and works out like every moment of every day, including <laughs> after games, right? He's not just the, he's not just the kindest, hardest working, most talented person I've ever seen up close and, uh, you know, in their, in their day-to-day habits. Um, you know, he's all of those things, but he was maybe too nice. He was maybe too accommodating, Right. And I do think there's a level you have to get to in this league where, you know, you you take it. You go out and and take it. And I think one thing that happened when the Panthers changed coaches to Joel Quenville, uh, obviously, you know, who's no longer uh, working in the NHL and, in fact, has been uh, de facto expelled from the league for his role in the 2010 Chicago thing, is Q went down and for the first time in Barkov's life, this player who's never cheated once on a single shift or ever been on the wrong side of the puck all of a sudden had... This coach who looked at him and was like, yeah, you're good, but you're not Jonathan Taves. You don't win, you know? And he had to prove himself. It was like, okay. And I think that 
meant a lot in terms of changing his mentality and making him into the ruthless winner that he's been over the last two years. That's the type of step that Pedersen needs to take. And he's only 23. He's got time to make it. But that's the type of step I want to see more so than anything else this offseason. He's going into the age, in fact, when a lot of players do make that kind of step. But you're right. It's going to be pivotal for, for him and obviously for the future of the Canucks as well. That'll do it for us today. We'll be back tomorrow at noon to wrap up the week with another edition of Canucks Hour. The People's Show is up next. It is the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.